The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome to the Rebel Podcast. Elder P, P Knight, AJ, Garage Mahal, Dave on the knobs and dials. How you guys doing today? Good, good, uh, good to be back after a little bit of holidays. We did have that that Christmas special, but other than that, we were off last week and uh, happy to be back here. I guess you guys have a good Christmas, New Year's. Like I saw you guys, so it's weird for me to ask that. But I did have a good good holidays. I feel like I gained like fifteen pounds. Here's the problem. Like I made a Christmas. <laughs> I'm going to go on a bit of a rant. I made a Christmas meal because we had service on Christmas Day, right? So like, you know, it's kind of awkward. Like, what are we doing? So we just we we're like, oh, we're like going to make a big feast for ourselves. But I didn't factor in that like when you make a big feast for yourselves, you're now the one that's responsible to eat all, all of, of the leftovers of this. So I had ham and like potatoes and like veg for like four days. You guys have seen me on the videos. <laughs> I'm a healthy portion man. Um, and so like I was eating like ham for like a week and I loved it. Don't get me wrong, but like I haven't felt hungry since Christmas day. Like, <laughs> and I'm just like, I feel like I've just been, and like this chocolate. The obliga- like, and with how expensive everything is, you're like, I am eating every last bit of this. Yeah. And it was like a 70 pound ham. <laughs> I mean, was just like not that big, but I mean like it was one of those big spiral ones, but I was like, I literally feel like I've eaten constantly from like, so I'm actually happy to be here because there's no food here. Like, <laughs> Fair enough. I, I had a couple of people ask me about my prime rib and I wanted to just update everybody and say, yes, it was delicious. <laughs> nice. It was wonderful. It was everything you hoped it would uh, be. And, and more. I, and that, more. Is, that is and quite the cut of meat. I'm just going to say, if you can get that cheap, that stuff is magic. I actually saw a recipe for prime rib that I want to try recently. And it's basically you try to make it like you make a brisket. So you heat up the, the cast iron grill before you slow cook it and you basically brine the outsides and then put it in the slow cooker because then it blackens it. the yeah, outside. Yeah, yeah. I did like watch that. videos on that and there's like the difference between a reverse sear, which is doing that after it's been cooking like low and slow. Okay. And that is, you, you let the, uh, at least according to the guy I watched, Joshua Wiseman, if you don't know him. <laughs> Just throwing him out. Little, little plug right there. Yeah. He's amazing. But yeah, anyways, he would say, and he cooked both of them and the meat was much more like tender and cooked through. So there was like, it wasn't just like the middle was medium rare and the outside was dark, which is, it can happen when you do that sear immediately. Okay. But when you do the reverse sear, so you sear it after that's where you get that nice browning, but you also get the meat cooked evenly throughout. I feel like we should have a podcast show. Just like just like just food. It's like food with AJ. And yeah, I mean, like, I can talk food. We'll, yeah, get, yeah. Da- we'll get Dan Mashenko in here. Yeah, and just like, yeah. <laughs> so let me get this right. You slow cooked it and then took it out, let it rest, and then put it back yeah. on for the sear. I mean, yeah. if I had my way, and my wife doesn't really listen to this, so I can't get in trouble, <laughs> but I would have bought a smoker and smoked it, working on the smoker. But in the oven, yeah, you. I think it was like 
two and a half hours at like 250. Right. And then you let it sit for about half hour, but yeah. then you crank the oven to 500 and then you put it in for about another 15 minutes. And yeah. that gets you that nice exterior and it's like really brown. But yeah. then the inside was just, we had to pan fry it a little bit just because it was a little bit more rare and we ran out of time. So I had to just put it on like cast iron just for like a minute, just the blood scared people. <laughs> I mean, it was glorious. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really good. Yeah. Lead your home, Jordan. Get a smoker. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> thank you. This is a Dominion issue. <laughs> um, yeah. So speaking of smokers, so I did a brisket the first time, like the first brisket I did when I got the smoker, it was okay. I think you, I think you were there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was good. Like it was fine. It was good. But Abe from the church, he told me, Abe Clausen, who's like the smoke whiz, right? The wizard. He came and he told me that, oh no, what you need to do is let it, let it rest a lot longer than you think. So like, if you look online, it's like, oh, let it rest for two or three hours or whatever. He's like, no, no, just let it rest for like eight. I'm like, what? So what I did was I basically just... Eight hours? Yeah. So I had, so you put it in the butcher paper and then you wrap the butcher paper in a towel and then you just put it in a cooler. And I left it there for like eight hours. And then when it was about done, then you, you crank up the, the heat on the smoker to like 450 and then you just sear the outside so you get that nice crust on the outside. And then I actually put it just back in the towel, back in the cooler for an hour. And then when I had it, it was like amazing. I did on it, it was a smaller cut too, but I'm like, now when I do that next time, it's just going to be like amazing. We've been talking about paradigm shifts. Paradigm shifts of food should be, should have been a comment because like, mm resting meat was never a thing when I was like, yeah, that's I like, know. I've and never heard of this until recently. It's like, oh no, seasoning like, everything like better. seasoning is also yes. like even just salt and pepper. But like, I have some like homemade mixes that well, I do, but even just like salt and pepper. Well, I was, yeah. that's where I was about to go with it. Like putting a base on the meat before yeah. you cook it. Like, and like, I, I was like watching these videos, like some people do like a, like a light mustard base and then they put their seasoning that's on that. Oh yeah. That's what I did. That's what I did. talking about. That's what I did. I'm like, I've never considered that before. I've seen one, some with mayonnaise where I was like, that looks a lot grosser, but I was like, I like mayonnaise. So these little things, I'm just like, if we're going to come to the point where we have an internal church economy, where all we do is buy food off each other, knowing how to make my own base is going to be huge. So the other thing, when I did our the turkey for our small group Thanksgiving, I got an injector and that was like a game changer too. So you basically, I made like a butter salt, like melted butter and with salt in it and just injected the meat like Anybody multiple have- times while it was smoking. And it was just like so juicy, so good. For a moment when you said, I got an injector, I, we had like vaccine flashbacks. I was like, I was just like, <laughs> is Nate vaccinating his meat? Like, <laughs> no, no, definitely the opposite of that. But yeah, no. It's- That's a vaccine I would take. Um, like if <laughs> just like, butter and just salt. Like, just put butter and salt in my, in my bloodstream. Like, this is, this is you still like, like feeling full. So it's like, just give me the butter I crave. Like, yeah, just yeah. give me the, like, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So anyway, um, the maple syrup I'm getting hungry. So let's stop talking about food. And you actually had a news item as a Bills fan that you wanted to check. About this. Oh, we're the rebels. Welcome back. Happy oh, yeah. New Year. All that stuff. Okay, talk, talk yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I wanted to get your guys' take on something that happened on Monday Night Football this past week. So we're we're, uh, we're recording after the Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals were supposed to play on Monday Night. Yeah, this will probably come out the week after, and but it'll the, probably be a week the, from when this Yeah, so drops. just so you guys know when you, we're talking about this. So this is kind of recent news. And what happened in the game? The game was called off after in the first quarter, um, one of the Bills' safeties. Damar Hamlin, I'm sorry if I say the name wrong, went down on the field what we initially thought was a concussion, and then it, it turned out later that um, he had to be given CPR on the field um, because he suffered a massive cardiac arrest in the middle of a football game. This is a 24-year-old 
athlete, rushed to hospital. And right now, as we're recording, keep him in your prayers because Jordan had just let us know that we actually think he might be a believer. And also, like, not that we wouldn't pray if he wasn't, but I mean, and also, like, he's still in, in critical care in the in the hospital. So this is a situation currently that is still ongoing. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on, on it because... I noticed two things when I was watching the game and I have a, a group uh, group thread with some of the, my other friends that go to the church that are Bills fans and we were all chatting about like, isn't it interesting that the moment this happened, as soon as the seriousness started to um, come out, immediately the narrative of the NFL changed to pray, let's let's bow in prayer, look at all the prayer, players praying, send out your prayers, even to the point where one of the analysts at the game prayed on national TV for him, his family, and whatnot. And I don't know the, the circumstances of all the, the people, but isn't it just interesting? And I want to get your guys' thoughts on just the what happened at that situation with the one with the prayers to, like, cardiac arrest, the 24-year-old guy. Yeah. What's the first thing that comes to your to your mind when, when I told you that story? So just start talking. <laughs> the first thing I think about is just how much of this has been happening around the athletic world. It's like suddenly there's there's a pandemic of athletes having massive heart related episodes after the vaccine came out and was mandated and all, all across these things. We actually had, I won't say his name or anything. I, we had an athlete who was coming to the church for a little while who was actually lost his job because he wasn't vaccinated. And he actually got in, into some trouble for saying that he was and, uh, and he wasn't, he was playing professional sports as well. It's just oh. interesting that you have this because of a health crisis, I'm using scare quotes, but this untested vaccine gets pushed out and everybody gets forced to have it for the health and safety of everyone else. And now we're seeing the repercussions, obviously, of of something that wasn't tested well and, and all this. And so you're having these, like it really is, like you start Googling things about young athletes dropping dead. You were telling me about a couple guys in the Premier League who had cardiac episodes. And like, what at what time in history did you see, like we're talking professional athletes who are like the, the most healthy people in the world who are just having heart attacks while they're playing soccer, while they're playing football, while they're playing like this at this level, we're talking, we're, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of athletes across the world and their peak physical condition. That's just, just never happened before. Right. And so, and, and it was interesting how quick they were to say it's not vaccine related. Like really? Who's the medical professional ESPN commentator who's like knows well enough to know, well, we do know it's not vaccine related. Really? They've ruled that out because really they don't rule anything out until they go and actually do some tests. So that's interesting. I said to Heather, because she was watching the game with me, I basically said, really? Yeah, she she was on her phone, but she was was there. Um, Tell the story right. Tell the story Um, right. um, But like, it was like, you know, the game started at 830. It was probably about 1030 when like a lot of the like, Twitter accounts started to say, oh, this is what has transpired. Like they, that's how long it took till they called the game off. And it was funny. It was like, like, like somebody connected to the um, NFL, almost like a doctor. I can't, I don't know the name, so don't quote me, but like right away was like, doesn't seem like it's vaccine related. Be like, they haven't even said what happened yet. Like we yeah. were still in the idea that he got hit under concussion. His, yeah. Like, or he, like something happened with his neck. Like that's a common thing that happens, unfortunately in football. And I remember being like, they're already spinning the narrative that this right. isn't vaccine related. It's just like, this is crazy. Like the world we live in right now. And that's where I kind of wanted what I like was like the world we live in where it's like, we we're even afraid just to say, yeah, you know what? Like it could be like, you know right. I mean? Like, well, it's, fibers- it's because I think, I think it's because the, the social narrative is such a house of cards that the moment one, like that's how fragile the whole narrative is. Right. Like I think everybody 
who has benefited from the narrative of this pandemic and, and everything related to it. It's such a thin argument that you take one card out and the whole thing topples down. So you have this just this panic, this fear that the narrative will shift. And that it, we, we saw that in our own country when with, with Justin Trudeau and how he responded to the trucker convoy, right? Where now suddenly, like there was a, I mean, you're, you're the leader of this nation and there was an unwillingness to even have a conversation with the organizers of the trucker convoy, which is just baffling, right? And you think like, how do you get to be a leader of a nation and you're not willing to talk to thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are protesting in your nation's capital about the decisions that you've made? And it's because to even legitimize their concerns would be to pull out a card and it's such a house of cards that it'll all come crashing down so so i imagine that you have a bunch of of you know football higher ups or whatever i mean let's be honest nfl's big business and so who the minute this happened they they didn't care about whether or not he survived in the hospital they didn't care about like what they cared about was this looks bad how do we spin it which is interesting because then you know another aspect of the conversation that i know you want to get to is sort of well, it's interesting that the just the the massive divide between sort of I guess the higher ups or the elites or the, those on the inner circle who immediately go to narrative saving you know uh, mode to those guys on the field right the teammates on the field who go to prayer who go to like in, in and I don't know the heart condition but just culture alone would tell me that the amount of guys who are there praying are probably just cultural Christians at best I, I I'm not saying I, I'm not going to judge the hearts of them but just I mean, numerically speaking, I would say that they're probably a lot of them just cultural Christians. But it's it interesting that that's their response is things go bad. We got to pray. We got to do this. We got to do that. Whereas the elites, it immediately goes to spin mode. And it just shows the divide in our country be- between the sort of the elites and the peons. Mm. Not that the athletes are the peons, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like in terms of those who are protecting <clears throat> the narrative. Yeah, they're, they're the tools, though, to the elites. Right, like exactly. Business, right? Yeah. Like even though they're well-paid and they're well-compensated, like at the end of the day, like the NFL is a machine, right? And those are the cogs that make this machine work, right? right. Like, so, yeah. and it's, I, I thought it was interesting too, because like it was obvious right away, this was drastic and there's no way you can play the game. Like it was like people watching, it was like, why is the game sep- suspended? It's it's over, it's done. Like uh, Josh Allen, Bill's quarterback, he looked like he had seen somebody die. And I'm like, and I'm like, thankfully that isn't the case, but like his face, he looked like, he like he was white as a ghost and his eyes were like he was a zombie and it was right. like think about it like for you if you went to work tomorrow hopefully this doesn't happen to you Nate but because I mean, it, like, it'd probably be you dropping down <laughs> I'm the overweight one so yeah probably um but like imagine if you went to work every day for you know it's been 16 weeks this season plus he was on the team last year so a couple of years you worked with a guy and you witnessed him have to get CPR at work and then all of a sudden they're like, but now you got to go back to your work. Now you need to go back to work. Get I'd, prob- back I'd probably cancel those meetings. Yeah, you're, <laughs> like, you're probably taking the week off right. at least. And it's like, but the, 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 the well, fact that, that that was. Which one of you dropped dead? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I was about to make a joke and then I was like, check your words, check yeah. your heart. Um, uh, but look, it's the idea of like, we, we would never expect other people to continue on. Right. And it's like, it's funny, the narrative of the NFL was like, oh, these are soldiers. And I'm like, a soldier is trained to deal with trauma. You know what I mean? This is why like, when you go to war and, and Jordan gets shot and goes down, I finish the battle and then I mourn. You know what I mean? Like, but like the NFL, they're not, they're not actually warriors. We use those terms and like, they're just guys who are good at sports. You know what I mean? They're not they're not battle-hardened warriors. They don't go to and so like the moment somebody drops dead or appeared to, like 
get them off the field. Get like, what do you do? What are you yeah. doing? And thankfully the coaches and the, and the players like all respect. They, I think they were the ones that called the game. It was mm-hmm. like, we're not playing. Like right. we talked way longer than I intended to do on that. But <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting thing because the last little thing I'll say on it is like, oftentimes we hear like, why does God allow bad things to happen? This is a terrible situation that happened, but what is the response is that we see people being drawn into prayer Somebody prayed on national TV for him. Mm. Everybody's narrative was like, hold them up in prayer, hold them up in prayer. And it's one of those things where it's like God using something that's a, a terrible situation to bring people into like, oh, we should be praying. This is this is life or death. And it's just like, it's just one of those things. It's like, we need to grasp our, our head that like everything that happens is ordained, right? And it's like, hopefully he recovers and he he's, <clears throat> he's saved and all that stuff. But we, it's funny how that brings people to the foot of the cross. Well, the thing that I was thinking about was uh, just the reality of like eternity is written on our hearts and how even in a moment like this, you see people saying, and and really we know them to be silly comments like, well, you know, oh God, thoughts are, you know, tossing up good thoughts for you. It's like positive vibes, right? Like just that's nonsense, like to who, to what. And, but it just exposes how when we are confronted with death, even like a non-believer, it's a troubling thing to see another fellow image bearer. They might not see it in those terms. But then the other thing I think about is, I don't want this to sound like crass, but I'm thankful that these people are inconsistent in their paganism because really, if they're going to be consistent with the worldview of evolution, well, so what? He's stealing your resources. Like, why are you going to care? But it's like, and I'm thankful for that because it shows that, they are inconsistent and we aren't act like they're not literally living at what they say they believe because otherwise you're not going to care. The world's overpopulated anyway. That's one less person breathing out carbon dioxide. So, you know, like that, that really is the sort of, and, and, and that's where I often say that people, nobody actually wants to live in, in that worldview. They want to believe evolution because it, it saves them from um, dealing with uh, being subject to their creator. It gives, but the, it gives them an out for, yeah. I, I know God exists, That's right. right. so I suppress it. That's right. But I, but yeah, they, nobody actually wants to live in that world where everybody's just protoplasm bobbing on the surface of the cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that's good. I would say too with Christians is don't get caught in the silly language. Christians should never say thoughts and prayers are with you. And if somebody says like our thoughts and prayers, it would just be like, hold on to your thoughts, but I'll take your prayers, right? Like that's what's powerful. Your thoughts do nothing for me. And you don't have to be rude about that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, let's not talk like pagans talk. Let's pray to the living God um, because he's he's able to do that. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know how much you want to talk about this now, but we what we had thought was- we were, ruined the whole episode. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Um, no, not at all. But um, what we were just talking about paradigm shifts and whether or not there's more that we want to say in this series and one of the things that Jordan kind of suggested as a guy who this is this is new for is just kind of talking about, I guess, kids and uh, and that kind of umbrellaed into the bigger thing of sort of what is worship. And so there was a couple aspects of it because uh, Jordan in coming to Crossroads had never experienced family integrated worship, which is a big part of of our church and 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 who we are and what we're trying to do. And there's there's good reasons for it. But then that's sort of all subsumed in the bigger idea of what do we believe worship is? What are we doing with worship? Because I would, I would say, actually, I don't, I don't really know. So I should ask this question. I would say that like, in terms of a, a service liturgy, that would be fairly new to you as well, right? Yeah, yeah, no. We, so like confession, assurance. Yeah. I mean, we, weekly uh, communion. Yeah, previous church, it would have been, a, it, it would have had a routine to it, right? Yeah. Where you, you know, song like an, a welcome, a song, maybe 
you know, then it'd be like announcements, more songs and littered throughout the month, you'd have like a baptism or something like that. But it was like, there was structure to it, but right. not in the, not but in like the way an order of service, yeah, not, not in the way that we do it. No, yeah. that's right. So I guess what I'll say is we'll probably end up talking about this. Probably the big conversation is family integrated worship, because that's, I think, very uncommon in kind of North American churches in general. That's probably the bigger conversation. And we might actually let's just save that for the end because we might end up running out of time and do that next week or something. But we can talk about sort of what we do for worship, but just kind of talking through liturgy and, and everything. So I, at our church, we kind of do a, a call to worship. So any announcements that we have, we don't consider them part of our worship service. So we do announcements. And after the announcements, we do a call to worship. And we do a call to worship because God calls us to worship. We don't initiate worship. We are called into worship by the by the true and living God. And so we start with a call to worship. We go through confession of sins, and we do that in order to uh, come before God with a clear conscience so that our worship is unhindered by a guilty conscience. And then after the confession, we do an assurance of pardon. After the assurance of pardon, we, we go into our, our praise time. We usually have uh, several songs there. Then we do the sermon, which is sort of like the meal, right? Is is uh, God feeding his sheep through uh, his word. And then we do another song, which leads us into our time of communion, which is uh, around the Lord's Supper. And we do that every week, which I guess is a little unique as well. But the other thing that I would say to that is, is that a lot of times when in, in churches they do communion once a month and communion becomes this really somber time of sort of personal reflection and confession, and so just a point of even saying like, no, no, we do that at the end. Confession has already happened. This isn't a time of confession. This is a time of communion, fellowship with God. And we do a closing song. We do a benediction. That's sort of our, our worship. So we can talk about any one of those elements, but why don't we start with sort of a, the big idea of like, what is worship? And I think this is, uh, Jordan and I were having a conversation with some um, uh, brothers who I, I would say just disagree with um, the stance our, our church took over the, the pan- time of the pandemic. And I, I was reflecting on this. I, I think I noted it at the time, but I think it became more obvious to me as I was thinking back and reflecting on that conversation is that at the heart of that was really this, what we believe worship is, right? So I want to be fair to the other side, but so do you think it would be fair to say the general North American view of what church is, is a time to connect with God and learn about him? Is that fair? I think so. Yeah, that sounds right. Right. And, and so, for the individual as right, well. Right. That's think what that's, I mean. Like yeah, it's it's yeah. my time to yeah. connect personally with, with my Savior and to get fed and filled up with the Holy Spirit. Right. Like that that would sort of be the general idea, which which I think plays into the whole idea of kids. That's why we have kids. That's why we have nurseries, because my kids are a distraction to my ability to connect with God. And again, I'm I'm not uh, I would say I think the intention behind that is fine, because what they're thinking is I can be a better husband or a better mother or a better father or whatever if I get filled up with my sort of Holy Spirit time and then I become a better parent so that like I'll send my kids away so that I can get filled up so that I can be available to them. I think that's that I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yep. And I would just say we have a fundamentally different view of worship. What we believe is that there's actually something unique that happens when the corporate gathering takes place. 
that when the covenant people of God assemble to worship God, that we are actually ushered into the heavenlies. So Ephesians tells us that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We know that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And then we know that we are commanded to pray, you know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we actually believe that what's happening, spiritually speaking, in worship is that, that God's covenant people are coming before him in worship, offering to him worship as he's prescribed. And when that happens, because we are in Christ— we are ushered into the heavenlies. We worship him there. We are transformed by our worship there. And then we are released back into the world as changed people meant to bring that worship of God from the throne room of God to bear on creation as we scatter off into our individual lives. And I think that's just a fundamental shift in, in what we believe worship is. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is fairly new to you, Jordan. Like you, you would have heard that I think when when you started coming. I think we we were talking about this a little bit at uh, like even just in our, our Sunday morning gatherings and stuff. So would that be a fun, totally fundamental yep. shift in your thinking about 100%. what worship is? Yep. So how has that changed your perception of Sunday mornings? Let's just say it that way. I'd say one of the bigger issues that I had because of having that mentality of of churches, the church on Sundays for me and my experience, it then it made me much more critical over the things that I, mm, that yeah, I was actually there. So it's like the music isn't what I want. The way he handled that text is not how I, it, it, because it was, right. it, it was about me. Um, so I have found in, since coming to Crossroads, this isn't even me doing it intentionally. I just find myself far less nitpicky. Cause like, I mean, there's going to be songs that I don't like. There's going to be, Easy. I mean, <laughs> but, and like, well, and thankfully there's not much that you and I disagree with theologically. So right. there's very, I don't think there's been a time where I've been like, oh, don't say that. But I'm just even finding like even having that mindset now of it not just being about me. And it, this is a like a transcendental experience that we're all collectively sharing in with each other. Yeah. It feels so much bigger than that. Than you. And so then it's like I'm, I'm just finding myself not as critical over things because it, it, it feels bigger. That's than, an interesting point. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. That's yeah, yeah that's mm-hmm. good. And again, I want to be fair because I don't think that other uh, other pastors, because I, I came to this understanding of worship in the midst of my time at Crossroads, so it's not like I came here with this understanding. So I want to be fair to those who, who wouldn't see it that way. We certainly live in a culture where it's like, it's very easy. Let's be honest, people pick where they go to church based on musical preferences and how good the Sunday school program is or how good the foyer coffee is or whatever. Like people choose churches based on very shallow things now. And I think it might be because we foster a sort of consumeristic mentality just based on what we believe worship is. And I think just to relate this back and why I said that it came out in this meeting or at least in my reflections on this meeting is because I think if you have that mentality, then it becomes, well, I'm the one sacrificing when we go to Zoom church, right? When the, when the church is shut down, we are the ones suffering. We are the ones who are, and you know what? We're willing to do that for the greater good, right? But when it's not about you, it's actually about God and what he deserves and what he commands and what he prescribes and what he gets out of our corporate worship. Well, now it's not about me being willing to sacrifice some, some um, Sunday services during a lockdown. It actually becomes about denying God the Father, the worship that He's due in the Son, and and that's a much bigger deal, right? And so I think I think that's that was actually at the heart of some of these disagreements, and I don't know that I've made that the heart of many of my conversations with those who who took a different stance. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The domino that fell for me was the idea of like, and you guys are hitting on it. It's like this isn't this, this Sunday morning doesn't exist for me and and my glorification and my edification, if you would use that word, Mm -hmm. it exists to glorify the king. And the king summons us to his throne room 
weekly. He summons us to gather together as a family in worship of him, of him on a weekly basis. And so once, once you start thinking of it as like this is a command and this is what the king deserves, as you were just saying, like Christ is worth this, this worship. Everything we do glorifies him. It changes the dominoes. I can't, I can't stay away from church for a week. I have to go because this is, this is how we wage the war that Christ is fighting on, on, in the cosmos for his glory. Yep. Our praise songs and our prayer and our confession is how we push back the forces of darkness corporately as a, as a body. When Jordan goes home and raises his children in a, in a godly manner, when he serves, when he's generous, when he's kind, he's fighting the battle out in the, out in the culture. But when we come together as a corporate body, we're initiating this as, on a, as, a, as a holistic family, pushing mm-hmm. back the forces of, forces of darkness. And people are going like, to probably not feel comfortable with using those terms that, that worship is warfare and anything like that. But that is when Paul talks about the idea of like um, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. We don't come to church to push back the pagans. We come back to push back the ideologies and the, and the principalities of the air that would rage against what takes place on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is the worst time of the week for our enemy yep. because this is the time that the real king of this universe gets praised by his people, if that makes any sense. So. Yep, absolutely. I was just looking for this passage while you were talking, and it's in Second, uh, Second Chronicles 20. There's this conglomerate army of the uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites that are marching against Jehoshaphat and the uh, and the Israelites, and so they're coming against them. and And uh, Jehoshaphat realizes that they can't win this battle; they're they're way outnumbered. And uh, verse five says, "And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said." Uh, o Lord, our God, the God of our fathers, uh, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand are power and might so that none are able to withstand you. And and he he kind of prays that God would deliver them from this. And it wasn't enough just to pray because then in verse 13 after his prayer, he says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, uh, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael. And then he kind of prophesies, and he says, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. Uh, you will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And so, so what happens in the midst of trouble... <laughs> Uh, Jehoshaphat, the king, all the nation comes together. Notice women, children, everybody's present at this worship service. God moves in their midst and prophesies and says, go down and meet them, even though you know you can't beat them because God's going to win this battle for you. And then in verse 20, it says, now they arose early the next morning. They went out to the wilderness. And uh, when they had taken counsel with the Lord, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And they went out before the armies and sang. And so they actually send out the worship. It's like, it's like, hey, we're going to battle, Chris. Prepare the worship team. <laughs> and, and they just they send out the singers. And as they're worshiping God, God goes and slays the army that's in front of them. 
and I, I think there's, I mean, there's lots that could be said about that particular uh, passage. But what's interesting is that it, later on, it actually says that they go down and in the valley of, of, of the dead where all the enemies were slain, it says it took them three days to plunder all the goods from their enemies, which is amazing, right? So it, it shows us that worship is actually warfare. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the way we kind of um, bring this into a new covenant reality is that there are principalities and powers of darkness. We talked about that on a, on a recent Paradigm Shift episode. And, and one of the primary ways that the church wages war against those principalities and against the plans of the enemy succeeding against the church is by properly worshiping God. And so when we do church the way God tells us to do church, that worship is potent, it's powerful. There's nothing powerful about my singing, but there is something powerful about me, a part of the corporate church, singing praises to God because he's commanded us to. He lends his power to those who are, are acting in obedience to him. Then the question comes, so what, what is properly ordered worship? So we, like, if that's what wor- worship is, worship is, is for God, not for us. It's warfare. It's not just about my QT, my quiet time with the Lord. It's about more than that. Then the question is, well, what has God prescribed? Because there's obviously some really damning passages in Scripture when people bring strange fire to the Lord, when they when they come to worship Him the way that uh, in a way that He did not prescribe. So that's and and that's why and and let's just talk about something as simple as and because I think I think we derive all of our sort of liturgy from from God's Word, but let's just start with something as simple as as communion. I remember several years ago when we started getting, uh, I, when I, I was convinced of several things, one of which being that communion has sort of become this this once a month nuisance where it's like, oh man, it's the first Sunday of the month, we got to do communion, we got to make room for that, Cut, shave, you know, t- Chris, take out a song and I'll shave five minutes off my service, off my sermon, and it almost became this inconvenience, and so I'm just like, man, that's not good, <laughs> first of all. Um, and then the second thing I was sort of convinced of is is that we need to do it more often. So if it's this inconvenience, then it might seem counterintuitive to say, let's do it more often. But I think the switch to every week communion is, is just another one of obedience, right? Jesus says, as often as you gather, right? Paul, in giving his instructions, says, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. So it just became a very simple act of obedience. I think he commands us to do it every week, and so I think we should do it every week. It's been amazing because I would say one of the things um, that we were afraid of, eh, Chris, it was that it would just become routine and mundane, and I don't think it has. It absolutely hasn't. Well, essentially, too, with with that communion thing, communion's the the uh, the best example I think in our in our church of it because, generally speaking, Jordan's the newest of of us anyway that have, have attended out of the four of us here. But one of the things I hear very quickly when I'm like, oh, like. What are your thoughts? What do you What do you think? Is like, oh, I don't know how communion every week is going to go. And almost universally, a month later, that person's like, I love the fact that you guys do it every week because when we get into a routine of like, oh, we do it once a month, and I'm not like, you know, other churches do what they do, we do what us. I, I care what we do, not what they do. But going to other churches and when before I came to Crossroads, before we even did it every week, it was kind of like, oh yeah, it's just something we do once once in a while. Doing it every week you have to wrestle with why do I do this every week? And first and foremost, we do it out of obedience. But then two, just because we do it out of obedience, there's like, why did Christ then tell us to do this every week? And he did do this as often as you gather together to remember me. But one of the things that's so interesting about communion, I think at our, at our churches is it's not just the somber, like we have weeks where the person who does the communion, it's a somber reflection. Like Christ 
paid a price that you couldn't pay. Let's give him glory for that. But how often do we also have the, this is a family meal, a supper table before the next battle that's about to be fought, the next thing that comes. Let's celebrate what Jesus has done. Jesus invited us to, and like communion is a highlight of our service almost every week, even though we do it every single week, right? Like it doesn't right. get old. It's almost refreshing. If that, like, I don't know a better word for that. But. Yep. Well, I think if you, if you look at communion as a family meal, right? I don't remember, it was what, a month ago, where it's like we have a seat at the king's table, we are all yep. co-heirs in his kingdom, and we're coming to celebrate what he's done for us in this meal. It, it's kind of weird to think about when you gather with your family, you wouldn't do that. Like, yeah. it's like you, you get together with your family and you share a meal. Like, that's kind of like a picture that we see in scripture of celebration, of uh, initiating covenants and all those things. Yeah. And I think you know, not to just kind of belabor the whole uh, COVID stuff, but I think that is a fundamental reason why it was easier for some churches to not. That's a good point. Is because, and, and again, I think by nature of our church at the time being a smaller church, it was easier to be a more of like a family, right? It's yep. easier for you to say, well, you can't tell me to not gather with my family when you're a 50-person church versus, you know, 5,000, right? Yep. It, but, and I think that's just why it becomes easier to do it every week because we're family. Like yep. we're getting together. And I, and I personally think like even in, Corinthians, when it's talking about the meal, it is an actual meal. And I realize it's hard to have an, a full meal with even 600 people at our church. I get, yep. it, it just becomes uh, the, the logistic. Symbolizing yeah, the it's logistically, it's hard to do. But I think, I think the most consistent picture would be an actual loaf of bread, actual wine, actually sitting together, having a meal, and, uh, and being able to do it as a family, sitting around and remembering. But I realized, like, just logistically, that's not the easiest thing to do. I mean, I'd be all for 600 people showing up for a potluck and, and doing that, but that's just, right? We have done that. It's yeah. just hard. It's, it's hard to <laughs> do it. Logistically, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to do that every single yeah. Sunday. So I... That's but, Jordan at Grant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I definitely agree with that. Now, you mentioned something interesting because I would say that this is something we, we I, I said we start our service with confession every every Sunday. And there's two things I can I confess every single Sunday, except actually the last two. Can I, can uh, I guess? Can I, yeah. Can, two services. Yeah. That's, what, then, that's then, what I said. Not the last two yeah, weeks. Yeah, you only then, had one. Well, that one was the easy one because you've said that a couple of times. And then not real wine. Yeah, that's right. So like literally every Sunday, like I confess my personal sins as well, but I always confess as the pastor of a church, I think that we are sinning every week by doing multiple services and by not doing wine for communion. And we, we were kind of on the on the trajectory that when we had gone to every week communion and, and sort of setting aside time and, and I think observing communion correctly, um, sort of the last domino to fall in that that whole thing would have been the switch to real wine um, that was uh, coming up right before the pandemic. And it was sort of like, let's just do one battle at a time. Um, so I do think that, that that will be something that I'll be that will be looking to reform the thinking of the leadership of the church for first. I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm not the only guy with a vote there. But I think I think that the, the simple argument is Jesus said, use wine, use wine. Right, 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 and and I remember it was actually again during the pandemic. I remember Lecrae. I don't know if you saw this. Lecrae on like Twitter or something uh, posted a picture of himself saying, "Oh, just having communion with my church family. What happens when you don't have grape juice at home or something like that?" And it was a picture of him with his church on the on the TV or on the laptop beside him. So like Zoom church, obviously, and he had um, fish fishy crackers and apple apple juice. And it was funny to watch Christians react and be like, that's so sacrilegious and stuff. And I was thinking to myself, 
But how many of those people go to churches where they use grape juice and and, and, and a wafer, yeah. right? So like, so what's the difference between a fishy cracker and a regular cracker when God said use wine or uh, use bread? And what's the difference between apple juice or grape juice when when God said use wine? And so I th- I think this is a, a place where the uh, the symbols matter. The alcohol in the wine symbolizes the growth of the kingdom throughout the wine as, as the kingdom grows throughout the world. The leaven in the loaf um, working its way through is a symbol of the uh, the potency of the, the gospel spreading. So you look at that stuff and I think the symbols matter. And so not only are you taking the potency out of the symbols by not doing it right, but it's also just simple obedience. Like what makes us think that we're going to obey God on on um, what he says about gender roles when we can't obey him when he says use bread and wine and we just don't use bread and wine. Like that's a very simple thing to to adhere to, right? So if you're listening to this, we need somebody who will make wine for 600 people <laughs> on a weekly basis. This is all we do. I do make my own wine, but that's a lot. To, <laughs> that, that's a lot. I actually loved when our church was smaller early on, like um, baking a loaf. And there's something really powerful about like a homemade. Like So at our church right now, our, our, our communion bread is baked by somebody within the church family that week. It used to be I could bake a loaf for everyone. It's like there's something cool about that. I, I just felt like the shepherd of the church baking bread that would be broken up throughout the whole church family was a beautiful thing. Now we need a bit more bread than that. But uh, Shout still, out to our bread makers. They're good. Eh? Even yeah. the gluten stuff, sometimes when I'm handing it out, it's just yep. easier to grab the gluten stuff, and yep. it's great. Like, yep. Whoever's making our bread, keep it up. Yeah, there's a, you know? there's a, I'll give a couple of shout outs, because I, I do know that Lauren Riddles is, is uh, a bread maker. She's great with it. Susanna Baker, man, her bread is phenomenal. I'm, I'm going to say something that I hate myself for saying. Her bread is so moist. It's so good. Like it's like, like that's a terrible. It's like, but there's no other way to describe and sweet. it. It's like it's yeah, so a good. To it, right? Like yeah, it is. It's good bread. So good. Like what's funny about communion at a church with the bread? We're now talking about food again. I realize um, we should probably ate before we came. Um, I've never seen people go back for seconds. Before, but like when we finish passing out the bread at our church, there, there are people come up and be like, can I get <laughs> a little is, bit more? There is, yeah. Like, There's mostly children yeah, and like, Chris, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we broke the, when we used to break the yeah, little buns, yeah, yeah. I would finish the bun. But like yeah. real wine is one of those things. So let me throw some objections because I'm, I'm on board with this. You, yeah. So like, please, yeah. play, play devil's advocate. What about the person who struggles with alcohol? What about children? What about all those other little caveats that you have to like throw in? Like, how do you, how do you yeah. handle those two objections. Okay, I'll take one and then you take the other. Okay. All right. So for the guy or the girl struggling with alcohol, I would say this. First of all, I have no problem with having, you know, maybe the outer ring or one one of the things going around being just like we do for gluten-free options. I have no problem having some grape juice options for those whose conscience would be, you know, uh, harmed by, by taking wine. Exceptions don't make the rules, right? And so I, I think that there's there's a way for us to, like we do with the gluten-free bread. But the other thing I would say is I, I do think that part of our job as, as shepherds is to help people enjoy God's gifts responsibly. And so I actually think that the alcoholic uh, or the person who has struggled with alcohol in the past, I do think that full restoration for them does not look like abstinence forever, I really don't, right? Uh, Psalm says that God gave wine to make men's hearts glad, right? Jesus turned water into wine. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works, Ecclesiastes 9. And so you look at some of those things and you're like, obviously God gave wine and alcohol as a blessing for us to enjoy. 
And I think God always gives us dangerous things and calls us to tame them. That's part of what it means to take dominion. It's a microcosm of the great commission that he's given to us of taking dominion of the whole cosmos. So whether it's a tongue that he gave us, which James says is dangerous and can light whole forest fires, right? And we're called to what? Tame our tongues, right? God gave men strength for their glory, and yet we know men's strength can be used for for evil as well as for good. We're called to restrain things. And so I think, same with alcohol, that I think that the person who has struggled with alcohol in the past, as they become sanctified, I think it's actually not enough for them to um, self-control enough that they abstain completely. But I think the ultimate goal ought to be that they are able to actually enjoy God's gift the way he intended, that they ought to master themselves in such a way that they can have wine for communion and it not throw them into a frenzy. I would say that in terms of the the objection for the guy uh, or the girl who struggles with alcohol. What about kids, Jordan? Well, try not to get in hot water here, but... uh... (laughs) I mean, I think with, with something like alcohol, I, the first thing I think of somebody saying is, well, a kid's underage. To that, I would say, I think that is the responsibility of the parents to govern those types of decisions. I think the state has imposed their own will on that, where I think, I think it's for a parent to teach their children what responsible alcohol consumption looks like. That's the thing where I've disagreed with other brothers in the past, even um, like youth pastors in the past, where I would actually be of the perspective that I drink. I do so unapologetically. I do it, I believe, responsibly. And I think it's wise to teach young men what it means to drink alcohol responsibly in a wise way, proper setting, proper quantities, all those things. Otherwise, they're going to go to the world and they're going to do keg stands, right? They'll do keg stands and play beer pong. So I I think that's there's like wisdom in, in teaching young people how to do that. You see in the New Testament that there are younger people participating in the covenant meal. So at the end of the day, it says bread and wine. I would, to the simple argument, well, there's the assumption that like there are going to be people in our culture who are underage. So you, you do that. We obey Jesus, not not the state. So I think it just is a simply, well, they were there. You, you do what Jesus says. Yep. Um, but I just know that that issue with, you know, the drinking age. And I would just say to each parent's conscience and what they yep. allow in that, because I think there's going to be various perspectives on that. But I would personally say it's not the state's authority to tell me whether my 17-year-old can have a, a drink with me or a glass of wine or a sip of wine for communion, that I would say that's just where we obey Jesus on that. Yep. Again, we want to do that respectfully. I'm not going to... I also want to teach my kids not to sin, and drunkenness yep. is a sin, but I, I think there's a place there for teaching them proper, healthy, mature consumption of alcohol, even in the communion meal. And I would say that, like, not to pony on your objection, but... Part of the objection when somebody makes that objection, like, what about our kids, is the failure to understand that the church is a, is our household family of God. Like, nobody would really have a problem if, like, almost every parent I know has given their kid a sip of their beer or a sip of their wine for the kid to taste it. Like, and nobody's like, oh, I've broken the, the laws. Because everybody recognizes in my home, it's my rules. Like, right. And, like, I think when with the failure of the people who don't view the church as a household of households, mm, a faith good. family... Mm-hmm we apply the public rule to something that's not a public yeah. avenue. The church, the church is a private institution for the members of our, of our church. Like right. it's a, it's our family home. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's just collective. So like we would always obviously let our kids try that. And if like we would give it to them, like we're not talking like full glasses of wine or anything like, yeah. but 
Well, and I, I think there's answer. even, there's wisdom in, uh, there's different alcohol percentages in a sip of wine versus a shot of whiskey, right? <laughs> like we're not, yeah. I think God was yeah. kind in saying use wine, not whiskey <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is, whiskey, right? Yeah. But it's, you know, so I think there's just, there, there does have to be some Christian wisdom where there's sure. not a specific verse that says, you know, thou shalt give your kid a sip of wine and not whiskey. Right. I think there's just room there where we have to exercise wisdom. Totally. Yeah. All right, we've talked long enough about this episode, so do you want to just leave it there and we can come back and revisit some of the other aspects of worship next time? Fully integrated next time.